Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? I'm not going to read the full text in your bulletin. It's 25 verses, but I will read some highlights. Jesus begins in our selection here, verse 35. 
The context is the day before this event, he had fed 5,000 men plus women and children. God knows how many people that is with five loaves of bread and two fish, five pita breads and two fish. Could be whole fish, we don't know, but a miracle happened and they were fed. The next day they wake up, Jesus is gone, they camped out there. He had uh, went to the other side of the lake and so by the time they got to him, they were hungry again and they were questioning him, wanting to hear more from him and he knew they were after another meal like that. Who knows, God doesn't always do the same thing twice the same way. So he's now giving them the bread of life. Can you say the truth? He says here in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. So notice, coming to him meets hunger. Believing in him meets thirst. Verse 40 This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son, that's those who come to him, and believes in him, that's their hunger and thirst being met, may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. This is a rhetorical question. I don't mean for you to raise your hands, but who got saved because of their IQ score? None of us have enough sense to get in and out of the spiritual reign without the Father's help. The Father draws us by His Spirit. It is written in the prophets, verse 45, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Who knows God prepares our hearts. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, that's himself. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am, his person, the bread of life. That's interesting. He was born in a stable in Bethlehem, laid in a stone feeding trough, a place where grain is stored to feed livestock. That was his bed. It wasn't one of these wooden framework things you see. There's actually like stone tubs in Israel you can find there to this day. So there is the bread of life born in Bethlehem, which means house of bread, laid in a place where grain is served. He's going to serve himself. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. Now, in the story of the Exodus of the freed slaves from Egypt to the land of Canaan, the Lord sustained them with miracle bread, angel food. What is it was the name of it? Manna come down from heaven, and it sustained them. But they all died in the wilderness because of their unbelief, and their children took the promised land. And now even they're dead. So he is the greater miracle because who believes or partakes of him can receive eternal life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am, verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Now, he's getting into some statements that on the surface you think, is he talking about cannibalism? 
there's one very large denomination that thinks he did. And they believe when they partake of communion, it literally becomes the body and blood of Christ in their stomachs. They believe that. If that's true, then why do they have gluten-free bread in their services? Why do they give diabetics a pass to not partake of the cup? Are they shortchanging them? I don't know. But the point is, it is not foreign to our culture to think like this. Have you met someone that loved baseball so much that they ate and slept baseball? You ever heard that? He eats and sleeps football. She eats and sleeps volleyball. That doesn't seem far out to us, right? It's normal to our culture. Y'all are looking at me like, this is Texas, Alan. You grew up in Illinois. We don't talk like that here. I am the living bread which came down from heaven, verse 51. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And of course, the ones from Judea seem the most confused. They quarreled among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, when he says that, you can underline it. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. In other words, he who eats and sleeps me has eternal life. We come to him, we believe in him, we partake of him. That's the key to eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, that's himself, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Can you say Jesus? Jesus. What did he mean? Is it just a shallow interpretation that I gave? Well, I dug a little deeper, and there's a a respected Methodist theologian who years ago wrote a commentary named after him, named Adam Clark. And his paraphrase of this passage is, unless you become partakers of the blessings about to be purchased, By my broken body and shed blood, you cannot be saved. That's what I believe he was saying. As a person must eat and drink in order to be nourished, so everyone must fully receive the grace and spirit of Christ in order to partake of salvation. As food in a rich man's store does not nourish the poor man that needs it unless he receives it into his stomach, So the fountain of mercy existing in the bosom of God does not save a soul unless he or she becomes a partaker. You must receive Christ. So the doctrines of inclusion and universalism is false. Without Jesus, you've got nothing, folks. That's not bad English. That's the truth. We're going to honor today on our journey of honoring things, honoring the blood of Christ. Christ, the blood of Jesus. A physician named Dr. Horace Smith describes the importance of human blood. The Bible says life is in the blood. So when we're talking about the blood of Jesus, we're talking about the sinless life that Jesus lived for us. Each drop 
of human blood contains over 5 million red cells. In an average lifetime, a person's red cells arranged in single file, that's all the cells of their lifetime. As you know, they get replaced daily, not all of them, but some get replaced every day. If you arrange these cells in single file, they would reach from the earth to the sun and back five times. That's a lot of blood. Our bodies contain approximately 60,000 miles of blood vessels. Through this delivery system, blood provides everything our cells need to live, oxygen and nutrition, and then they remove waste, dead cells, and carbon dioxide away from the living cells. At the cellular level, the capillaries in our body are so small that they are the size of a single red blood cell. So they go in single file and touch every cell in your body. That's what makes us alive. To connect with all the cells of the body, capillary walls cover an area of about 70,000 square feet. The circulatory system is the epitome of consistency. Every day, your heart beats 100,000 times on an average lifetime each day over your lifetime. This amazing machine beats 2.5 billion times over the course of your life on an average lifespan, pumping 60 million gallons of blood. During this time, the heart never takes time off. We can't afford for it to take a break. Even a few minutes without blood supply causes severe brain damage. Virtually all other cells of the human body are stationary, but the blood is mobile tissue. Life of the flesh is in the blood, carrying nutrients and waste. No wonder the Old Testament says the life of every creature is in its blood. Today, we must understand the significance of this truth even more deeply as we consider the blood of Christ. There are no cells in the human body that can live without continual contact with living blood. Every type of cell from the ones that survive only moments to those that live for years owe its life to the flow of blood. All three types of blood cells in the human body, red cells, white cells, and platelets, as well as the plasma, I believe, perform functions that are essential to life. Can we say the blood of Jesus? So it's more than a metaphor. It is his life that is essential for all of us. And if we're going to eat and drink him, we must approach him, seek him. That's what we do when we worship. And believe in him, keep our faith in him. That's how we drink what he has provisioned. Does this make sense? Come to him, drink from him, believe in him, and go out and carry him to the world. We're extensions of life that Christ began. With his own blood, Jesus has brought us into several things. One is his promised new covenant. When he served the first communion, the Lord's table, as part of the Passover meal, he said, in more than one place, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission or removal of sins. So his blood takes the curse off of us and brings the life to us. He lived the perfect life, therefore his death was an unjust death that could be credited to the justice account of every human being so that your fine gets paid, justice gets served, no one gets off scot-free, Jesus paid it all, so we're all set free. Thank you, Scott. It's free, Scott. With his own blood, Jesus brought us into his purchased church. Acts 20, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock 
This is Paul teaching elders from the city of Ephesus where he spent considerable time raising up a great church. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, he's talking to these elders, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. A church that has no faith in the free gift of Jesus and giving his life for us, shedding his blood, is not really a church. Because they're not believing. You must believe to have eternal life. So to deny Christ just to appease certain other people, Jesus said we would be denied. Tony Evans, I think, was uh, invited to pray an opening prayer at City Hall and was asked to not pray in the name of Jesus. So he went. And he said, Father, I recognize I don't have a leg to stand on to approach you unless I come to you in the name of Jesus. Therefore, I come. And he prayed his prayer. Brilliant. One of my heroes. With his own blood, Jesus brought us into propitiation. Now, don't get scared of that word. We'll explain it here in a minute. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So he was sent to provide propitiation by his blood. What does that mean? It's a noun. Webster's 1828 dictionary says, it is the act of appeasing wrath and conciliating the favor of an offended person. The act of making favorable. If you're in a disagreement with someone and you see your error, you may ask, what can I do to make this right? What can I do? The courts are all about Making things right. That's propitiation. Jesus Christ's blood makes everything right. But don't hide behind it to justify your sins. That's not right. I was part of a church in Houston that was always having fundraisers to operate on. Their vision was ahead of the Lord's provision. And I learned a lot there, which is why we do things the way we do around here. And uh, one of their fundraisers was a, at that time, back in the 80s, early 80s, a flood hit Lake Conroe like they had never seen before and ruined some homes. And so the church purchased two of those homes, moved them to higher ground, and the laborers, the volunteers in the church worked to get those homes up to par so that they could be sold again. One of the homes sold, there was a prophet and a brother in the church had the cash money, profits in an envelope. And it was stolen out of his glove box. And when questioned intensely, if the pressure got too great, he'd say, it's under the blood. It's under the blood. That was a cop-out. The blood of Jesus was not given to us to cop out over our sins. We repent of our sins so we can receive the benefits of the blood of Jesus to forgive us. I stole it. Please forgive me. (laughs) Jesus died for my sins. It also means the atonement or the covering A sacrifice offered to God to satisfy his justice and render him propitious to sinners. That is merciful. Christ is a propitiation or the full payment 
for the sins of mankind. With his own blood, Jesus has brought us into justification. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were still sinners, before we were worthy, if any of us could ever become worthy, Christ died for us. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we should be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more than having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So the blood of Jesus was shed for you and I. It saves us. But if you mess up, the blood still stands. Now having become a blood-bought saint, part of the purchased church, how much more of a privilege do you have to run to him when you need help and forgiveness and strength? Lord, I need help. Forgive me. The word justification means it's the act of justifying, that is to make just, to show to be just or conformable to law. It's vindication, it's a defense. People like to say, it's just as if I'd never sinned, but it really that's not the case. We did sin, all right? But we have been justified because Christ never sinned for us. So it's just as if Christ never sinned. Number two, the showing of a sufficient reason in court why a defendant fulfilled what he is called to answer for. Your lawyer may say, your honor, he is paid, she has served her time, he has paid his fine. Things have been made right. He's paid his debt or her debt to society. Let's let the person go free now. The third meaning is it's a remission of sin, absolution from guilt and punishment, or an act of free grace by which God pardons the sinner and accepts him or her as righteous on account of the atonement of Christ. Who's glad to be justified? Jesus did it for us. Because of the propitiation, we have justification. It's all interconnected. With his own blood, Jesus brought us into redemption in him. Ephesians 1 verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his, let's say it, blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, not our behavior, his grace, which he made abound toward us. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And one other passage, 1 Peter 1, 18 you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. What got you set free wasn't your good looks or your money from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus. Now, some people think they are saved by their blood. You don't know who I am, they may tell a police officer. I'm the mayor's son. Don't give me a ticket. You know, I, I'm of the bloodline you don't need to mess with. Well, that creates corruption in the world. But Christ's blood is incorruptible. We are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. When you would bring your sacrifice to the temple, they wouldn't examine you and your sins. They would examine the lamb who's being offered as a substitute on your behalf. So perfection on the part of the lamb was what was needed. 
Here we are, stained with sin. And our sacrifice is Jesus. So the eyes of justice examine him, and he is sufficient for the cause. Redemption is a noun. It means the repurchase of captured goods or prisoners. Who's ever pawned something off? When you go get it, you redeem it. You buy it back. It's an act of procuring deliverance of persons or things from the possession and power of captors by the payment of a ransom. The whole world is looking in the Middle East right now for these 200 plus people that have been kidnapped, held against their will. What's it going to take to set them free? What is the ransom? Are they just going to be pawns? What is the deal? So spiritually, in our case, there was a ransom. It was death. The wages of sin is death. Jesus told the first couple, don't sin, you'll die. So we have that problem. So what's going to pay for it is our life. Well, then if you're dead, you're dead, right? So Christ came and gave his life so that you and I could be redeemed. Now, we still have death to deal with, but it's a physical body thing. Nothing to do with you spiritually. Number two, redemption is deliverance from bondage, distress, or from a liability to any evil or forfeiture, either by money, labor, or other means. It's the purchase of God's favor by the death and sufferings of Christ. I love the 1828 Noah Webster's Dictionary. It's the ransom for deliverance of sinners from the bondage of sin and the penalties of God's violated law by Jesus Christ. Can you say redemption? Thank you, Lord, for your blood. He's brought us into nearness to God. We're able to come to him. But now in Christ, Ephesians 2.13 now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Who's glad to draw near to him? Draw near to God, James wrote, and he will draw near to you. My daddy used to say, take one step towards God and he'll take two towards you. Draw near to him. It's important to seek him, to find him. That's how we drink and eat of what has been given to us. With his own blood, Jesus has brought us into peace with God. Who's glad to have peace with God? Colossians 1.20, to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. At one time, we were at enmity with God. We're surrounded by an unbelieving world that is at odds with God. They're mad at God. They deny his existence. They're cut off from God. And the ripple effect of that is they eventually get cut off from one another. And we have things called wars in the world. But through the blood of Christ, justice has been served. We can let it go, let it go. So we can come to God and find peace through him. And as a result of that, we have peace with one another. With his own blood, Jesus has brought us into having a cleansed conscience. This is one of my most favorite benefits. It is like palpable, tasteable, experienceable in real time. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You need your conscience cleansed? Have you ever had so much guilt for something you did wrong you didn't think you could ever overcome the regret? And yet through faith in Jesus, a miracle happens. 
He cleanses your conscience. You're not happy about past wickednesses, but you don't suffer and lose sleep and, and agonize and then blame those who cause you to do it. There may be someone here whose conscience has eaten you alive. Through the blood of Christ, you can receive forgiveness and a cleansed conscience so you can go free. On death row, people have found the Lord, had their conscience cleansed. They still pay their debt to society by dying, and they die fearlessly, without fear. How can they do that? They know where they're going, and their conscience has been cleansed. It doesn't mean what they did was right. It's been cleansed. Through the blood of Christ, you can forgive others who need to feel guilty. So you don't constantly try to hold people to their past and put them on guilt trips like you're some kind of travel agency. With his own blood, Jesus brought us into being sanctified, being made holy. Hebrews 13, 12, therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate like the scapegoat that had the sins pronounced upon him and carried out in the wilderness to die, he died outside the gate of the city, away from the temple for the sins of the world, so that we might be set apart. He was set apart. He should have been enthroned, should have been made king, but he was made into the likeness of a criminal, died an unjust death, tortured, robbed, ripped off, blasphemed and libeled, and yet... We get brought in now. He became one of us that we might become one of His. Sanctification is the act of making holy, to set apart. The act of God's grace by which the affections of men are purified or alienated from sin and the world and exalted to a supreme love to God. He just makes us holy. It's a process, yes, but He's done it by His blood. It's the act of consecrating or setting apart for a sacred person, person, yes, and purpose. It's consecration. Who has dishes in their home for special occasions? You do, all right? They are set apart for a specific purpose. You may have towels like that. There's towels for show and towels for go. Well, You and I have been made for go, not for show. We've been sanctified for a purpose, serving his kingdom. With his own blood, Jesus has brought us into having bold access to God. We can come boldly to him because we have a new approach, a new position. We have boldness to enter the holiest, the very presence of God, by the blood of Jesus. This is how we're able to enjoy his presence when we worship. There's just an extra dimension to the music when God is present. It's not the cool tunes. It's not the clever key changes. It's not the brilliant lyrics. It's not the melodies. It's the presence of God. And it can happen with a cappella worship. It can happen with nothing but an out-of-tune tambourine. God's presence is there. There's an extra dimension. Years ago, we had a guy come visit us fresh out of jail. And he said about halfway through our singing, he said, it was mysterious. He said it was like something about the size of Delaware 
came into the room just above our hands. He said, what was that? I said, that's the presence of God. How is that possible for a guy fresh out of jail to experience the immaculate, holy, incomparable, immeasurable, immense presence of God? The blood of Jesus. We can come boldly to him. We've been brought near by him. With his own blood, Jesus has brought us into being made complete. You ever feel inadequate? The blood of Jesus is the remedy for that. Hebrews 13, 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good thing. I think the word is missing there. To do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ. That's because of the blood. Through the blood of the everlasting covenant. To whom be glory forever and ever. And ever and ever and ever and ever. With his own blood, Jesus has brought us into being cleansed from all sin. Yes, those petty ones that you might sweep under the rug. And those horrible ones you think you'll never get over. Blood of Jesus paid it all. 1 John 1 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from, can we say it? All sin. Revelation 1 5. This letter that John is being given says, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, his blood washed white as snow. His blood has brought us into singing a new song. What kind of new song? Redemption songs. <laughs> Justification songs. Propitiation songs. Freedom songs. Revelation 5, 9 says they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue, and people, and nation. Out of every age, he has done this for us. So he was slain to shed his blood, to give up his life on your behalf, to allow it to be credited to your account. It's an awesome thing. Not only to be forgiven, but to be made righteous. It's great if your books are in the red to have them return to the black, you know, if you owed a million dollars and now you owe nothing, that zero balance is amazing, right? The pressure's off. But God doesn't stop there by erasing the penalties of our past. But he credits us with the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So it's better than having a zero balance. We have a credit balance, the righteousness of God. How is this possible? The blood of Jesus made the way. With his own blood, Jesus brought us into victory over the accuser. Talking about the accuser of the brethren who accused us before the Father day and night. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to 
the death. So the blood of the Lamb is what makes it possible to overcome Him and it makes it possible for us to have a word of testimony and makes us possible to love Him more than we love ourselves, to be willing to die for Him. Without the blood of Jesus, none of these other things would be possible. Now, while we're here at this point, let me just bring this up. I do not believe the accuser of the brethren goes to heaven every day accusing us. I believe this activity happens on earth. He was kicked out of heaven. Jesus said, I saw him fall like lightning. So I don't think he's rebounding back there to accuse us. He is accusing us before the Father through people. In his attack on Job, God only let him go so far. So Job lost all his stuff and his family, including the respect of his wife. And he lost good health. And he lost respect from his friends. That's as far as Satan could go, right? Not so fast. The friends then light in on him after staring at him for seven days. And they say things that I don't think God gave them to say. In fact, one of them, I think it was the second one, said, an evil spirit visited me last night, made my hair stand up, and says, who do you humans think you are? Basically, it's a very broad paraphrase. So he was tormenting Job through people. May the Lord help us to not be tools of the accuser of the brethren by accusing one another, spreading rumors. It may be as simple as just hitting the share button. Being a tool of the accuser of the brethren. God witnesses this. We're the apple of his eye. He's watching us. So the accuser of the brethren is accusing us day and night through one another. That has to stop. Stop. These self-appointed watchmen on the wall on YouTube think they're called of God to always broadcast the sins of others. Do you know if there's one inaccuracy in their testimony? They are liars. It's the truth. It's the truth. A delicious meal with a piece of crap mixed into it, it's no good anymore. <laughs> you may have 99 facts right and one falsehood in there, you've become a liar, a tool of the accuser of the brethren. So how do we how do we overcome that? The blood. Not fighting back. Because anything you say gets used against you. The police tell you that when you get arrested. <laughs> You have a right to remain silent. Your friends will defend you. Because anything you say, they'll take it and twist it and use it against you. And they love the attention they're getting from you. And they're actually distracting you when you're called to a purpose and a mission higher than dealing with your critics. It's the truth. So how do we overcome? By the blood of the Lamb. Jesus died for my sins, including those that are not even true. <laughs> You know, Jesus said, agree with your adversary quickly, lest you wind up in court and it costs you. That's what he said. So, yes, I'm not perfect, but Jesus died for my sins. So you don't get, you don't get hit with condemnation for things you're not even guilty of, and you don't get hit for condemnation for things that you once were guilty of. You're free by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony, your witness, your life, your friends who know you will defend you. And you overcome the accuser by not playing his game. Because the counterattacks can be as bad as the attacks, right? If he gets us accusing each other, 
I'm totally preaching in the dark here. I know of no case like this here. And not loving our lives to the death. What's the worst that could happen? The rumors or the lies or the falsehoods or the, the slander could lead us to being killed. Remember Jesus? <laughs> to live as Christ, but to die is so much better. So we overcome the accuser by overcoming the fear that he tries to generate. I know people hurt us, especially those that can be close to us. If a stranger makes an obscene gesture at you, it could almost be funny sometimes. But if it's a friend, somebody you love and know, it hurts. But we get to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. We put an end to the influence. So why is the accuser still around? A little kid asked, if God's all-powerful, why are we still dealing with the devil? He's making people fit for heaven. So that if we learn to walk in peace while we're being tested by the accuser, then we're fit citizens for heaven. He's sanctifying us by his blood. Because if everybody's going to heaven like they are, it's going to be a training ground. It could become earth too. That's why universalism is really dumb. It doesn't line up with scripture anyway, and heaven would cease to be heaven. So we're honoring the blood of Jesus today. These are the words of an old song written in 1911. This story came out of the 70s. Can we say the 70s? The 70s were the days of the Jesus movement, but then there were cool secular songs that related to Jesus. Remember, um, put your hand in the hand of the man who stilled the water. And then remember the nuns that sang the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed. And it was so great to be a Christian in those days to listen to secular people worshiping Jesus. Don't even begin to talk about country music. Not necessarily Christians, but great music. Well, little is known of this story which happened in the classical world. A man named Alan Powers made a documentary in London on a particular area of London where homeless people lived, interviewing them and recording them singing. Most of them were drunken and singing parts of opera songs and other kind of songs. And he made his documentary. A man named Gavin Bryars helped him. When the project was over, Gavin Bryars had a collection of recordings, this is audio, that he took home to listen to see if he could do anything with. And he found this little song that if he ended it at just the right place, it created 13 bars and it was a loop. You could just start right back with the last line. So the last line was, Jesus' blood never filled me yet, which is the first line, Jesus' blood never filled me yet. And he created this loop and took it to a studio in Leicester. Now, a studio was a room off of a large uh, gallery where artists were working. And uh, he had the loop working. Now he's going to maybe consider what to do with this loop, maybe add some music to it. He left his office open and went to go grab a coffee down the street. When he came back, the loop was still playing. The gallery was very quiet, and some people were weeping. He thought, what happened? And he heard the homeless person's voice. It was a sober man they interviewed and recorded him singing this little song. It was this loop. And he realized, I've got something here. So he took it and layered it 
with strings and brass and percussion and created an LP. How long was one side of an LP record long play? 27 minutes, 23 minutes? A song of this for 23 minutes. And then cassettes became a big thing in the later 70s, so they recorded a 60-minute version of this. And then when CDs became a thing, he recorded a 74-minute version of this song, layering the strings with the percussion and the brass, and he added a human voice, a well-known singer at that time named Tom Waits. Not a beautiful voice, but a powerful voice. Added it to it. And it became a hit in the classical world. Some people really love the minimalist approach to simplicity, but the building is just a beautiful song. One night in Canada, a DJ played the CD, 74 minutes. People called the police, thought something was wrong with the DJ. The song never ended. But reports came in from across the city, I don't remember where it was in Canada, of marriages being touched and people's depression being ministered to by the simplicity of this song. We're going to listen to it today. Have no fear. It's not the whole CD. It's a four-minute version. <laughs> in 2019, they had a live concert of this song that was overnight. It was for 12 hours. Something else. It's a reflection on the blood of Jesus. So while we listen to it, I want you just in your heart to draw near to the Lord. Just say, Jesus, I want to have a closer walk with you. And I really want to believe in you. And I believe you can eat and drink, don't sleep, but eat and drink the reality of what Jesus did for us by these words of faith. Jesus' blood never failed me yet, never failed me yet. Jesus' blood never failed me yet. This one thing I know, for he loves me so. Listen to this. Jesus' blood never failed me yet. Never failed me Yet, Jesus' blood never failed me yet. This one thing I know, for he loved me so. Jesus' blood never failed me yet. Never failed me yet. Jesus' blood. Never found me yet This one thing I know For he loves me Jesus' blood Never found me yet Never found me yet Jesus' blood Never found this one thing I know only Jesus' blood never Never found me yet. Never found me. 
The 12-hour-long concert took place in London at the Tate Modern Art Museum. Four members of the orchestra were Gavin Breyer's children. And so a high level of devotion on behalf of those musicians. I think sometimes in Christianity we gain our theology from definitions, as I just shared some here today, and mental assent, but we don't really drink in and apply the truth of said words to every single area of your life. In 2019 and 2020, we had a man named Dan Moeller come and preach here. A man with such revelation from God, he applies the fullness of the gospel to every single area of life. And he's meeting a need. One of those sessions with him here, I think it was our first Sunday morning with him, over 300,000 downloads and counting, meeting a need. Will you and I drink and eat and sleep what God says about us, not canceling out, not checking out, not saying, well, you know what such a theologian says about that, but applying it deeply to your life. It can happen when we're in the pits of despair but why do we have to wait till we're in the pits of despair to gain a full revelation of the grace of God for us? I shared this song in 2008. Around the time a family in the church, a cistrunk family, had a baby girl named Journey Faith. And Journey Faith was not able to eat because a significant section of her intestines were fused. So she spent days and weeks at Cook's Children's Hospital. And the early part of that scary experience for them, they had three other kids. Shannon, the father, was praying night and day and trying to go to the Word for comfort, but his mind was just too, too rattled to even read. But he remembered this song. And for three days, he would walk the aisles on that floor singing that song in the waiting room. People looked at him like he was crazy, but he was drawing comfort to him 
applying the significance of the blood of Christ to that specific situation. Jesus' blood never failed me yet. Never failed me yet. Jesus' blood never failed me yet. This one thing I know, for he loves me so. Jesus' blood never failed me yet. The Lord brought him through three dark days, and then the faith he had was strong. Would you and I please consider applying the truth and importance and relevance and significance of the blood of Jesus to your life, to your family's life, to your community, and especially to the people you cannot stand? To the point that it has an impact in light of all the other truths. Now, I know it's possible to take a truth and make it the truth and just go to seed on it. I'm not saying to do to that, but apply this deeply so that all the truths and promises of the new covenant are yours to have without a doubt because of the blood of Jesus. May a level of gratefulness and gratitude and thankfulness arise in our heart and may ingratitude and unthankfulness be flushed out of our lives for the rest of our lives because of the blood of Jesus. We have life because of his life. His blood is synonymous with his sinless life. Lord, we want to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, may we never be bored with the revelation of redemption and its realities made ours by your poured out life through your blood. Thank you, Lord. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever save. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you.
That baby came out of Cook's Children's Hospital almost 16 years ago. She's a student in high school in Alito, and her dream is to be an engineer. Go journey faith, amen? The weapon of truth works in anyone's hand. And just because you had a revelation that you held to in the past, now here's a new battle, oh no, it didn't work. No, it did work. Just use the weapon again. The enemy is relentless. He'll come back with the same temptation another way. Why? To wear you down to think it didn't work. Let me ask you, who's going to eat today? What's wrong? Didn't you eat yesterday? Just as relentless and hunger and thirst can be, the enemy is. He's predictable, like water to a leak. He's coming in. But the weapons that defeated him in the past will defeat him in the future and in the present. Lord, by your grace, we will build our lives upon your love. That's really what it's all about. Your love's a firm foundation, the revelation of your blood. And we will trust in you and your blood and your love alone, and we will not be shaken. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Go in victory. If you're unemployed, go by faith and start putting in some applications. Stop being the king of excuses. By the blood of Jesus, we are redeemed. We will not be shaken. Go get them, Tigers. God bless you. I love you so much. I will.